1 John 1, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to read down to chapter 2, verse 2, for the sake of context. And if you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find this on page 1021. I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Uh, Before we do look at this portion of Scripture, let me pray for us again as we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father, we do thank you for every word you've breathed out, and we thank you for those portions of your word that more pointedly hold out to us the hope of forgiveness and the promise of cleansing through the blood of your Son. We pray this morning that there would be preaching that paints the blood of Jesus to the consciences and the minds and the hearts of your people. We pray, our God, that you would do a powerful work in applying the death of your son to us this morning. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us and do what you've promised to do through the foolishness of the message preached. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, 1 John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 7. And John, as you know, was one of those intimate disciples of Jesus with him in the inner circle at the transfiguration, uh, with him really at every significant moment in redemptive history. And Here, John now says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. When I was... 12 years old, we moved to St. Simon's Island, and and one of the first memories I had as we started to settle down in that beautiful little island was that uh, in 1989, you could walk into uh, just about any store on the island, and you could write down on a ledger what you wanted to get, and you could walk out without paying for it. And coming from Philadelphia, that was a very strange experience to me, because in Philadelphia, Um, nothing would have ever happened like that. Um, They would have made you pay double for everything right then, and then you probably would have got robbed leaving the store. Um, And and this was a wonderful experience for me as a little boy, and I remember uh, my parents uh, at the end of every month having the discussion in their home how they had to go and they had to take care of their account. They They had to square up with the ledger at the hardware store, wherever else we did business. And as I've thought about that over the years, and I've thought about what an odd experience that is, though that wasn't an odd experience throughout human history, it, it actually serves as a helpful illustration for us when we come to consider uh, the nature of our relationship with God and what the scriptures talk about with regard to sin and what the scriptures talk about with regard to our accounting before God and what the, the Puritans used to say when they said we must keep short accounts with God. It's incumbent on us if we're believers to keep short accounts with God, that we would be, uh, that we'd be very purposeful, that we would be intent on making sure that the ledger is, is cleared up, so to speak. 
Um, and this subject is not an easy subject. If anybody knows the scriptures, you know how complicated, how complex. In fact, the first couple of verses here in 1 John, moving on out of that introduction, are very complex. On the one hand, John says, if anybody says that he doesn't sin, he deceives himself, and then furthermore, he makes God a liar. And then John says, uh, if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he says, I write these things so that you don't sin. And then later on, he says, if anyone goes on sinning, he's in darkness and he walks in darkness. And you understand the complexity. You understand something of the complexity of our relationship to God in light of the gospel and in light of our need for the forgiveness of sins. And in light of our need for the cleansing of sins, one of the things that we do here at New Covenant, it might be strange to you if you've never been in a Reformed church, is we have a time of the reading of the law and confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. And you might say, why would we do that? We do that because that is standard fare in the Christian life. We do that because if there's something that is pervasive in the scriptures, it's that a Christian is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who confesses their sins, who confesses them particularly, who confesses them regularly to God, who is constantly going back to Jesus in brokenness and contrition, in conviction of sin and knowing their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is not somebody, first and foremost, who gets involved in some kind of sympathetic humanitarian cause. Please let that sink in. In a day of sentimental humanitarianism, let it sink in that a Christian is first and foremost someone who has come under the conviction of sin and who knows continually that they need the forgiveness of their sins and they are looking at the blood of Jesus constantly for both the forgiveness and the cleansing of their sins. Sinclair Ferguson really sums this up so masterfully when he says, nobody seeks grace who does not first feel the weight of sin. Nobody seeks grace who does not first feel the weight of sin. You see, until we, until we see that our ledger is full and that we are, as the Bible often calls sin, debtors to God, we will never understand the nature of the Christian life and the nature of, of the place and the role of the confession of sin, both in corporate worship and together individually. I want us to look at two things this morning as we look at this passage. First, I want us to consider the call for confession or the encouragement to confession. And then secondly, the promise of provision for the one who confesses. Now notice, John has told us here in verse 5 that the message is that God is light. That's the message. God is not first and foremost love. Love in 1 John, God is first and foremost light in 1 John. The holiness of the triune God is set out first and foremost in this letter. And what John says is that everyone who knows him, because John is intent on helping believers understand where assurance can be found. Everyone that knows him walks in the light as he is in the light, and they and only those people know what it is to have their sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Notice what he says. He says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, let me say this this morning. John is not saying if you live a holy enough life, you merit cleansing by the blood of Jesus. That's ridiculous and, and contrary to everything the Bible says. What John is saying 
is that the people who profess to be believers and profess to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and profess to be bought by the blood of Jesus and profess to be trusting in the Jesus who shed his blood will be evidenced by the fact that they want to walk in the light as he is in the light. They want to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And notice that as John is developing this, he then goes into that sort of enigmatic uh, riddle, we could say, in verse 8, where he starts to talk about the nuances that this involves. Now, um, there is a background to what John is saying. There were false teachers in the church that uh, held to something called Gnosticism, and, and they basically said um, the goal of the human experience, it's actually not very foreign to everything we see in American spirituality and, and on Oprah and with yoga. And the goal is spirituality, breaking out of the body and attaining some kind of spiritual experience because the spirit is what matters, not the body. And, and then therefore, Gnostics said what you do in the body doesn't really matter because it's what's really inside that matters. And, and the spiritual realm, and are you living in the spiritual mystic realm? Um, and, and, and when you get into Gnostic writings, it's ridiculous. Some of them actually said that Jesus came from the ear of the virgin, and you're like, people believe this. But people believe all kinds of crazy stuff in our world. Um, and John is, John is writing to help people make sense of the truth. And he's saying to them, listen, if we say we have no sin, if we think we can attain to some level of sinlessness, we deceive ourselves. Um, now, I think the human heart is so subtle that the danger most of us are in is not the danger of falling into a sort of uh, Gnostic mysticism, per se. I don't think that about most of you if I know you, but I think the danger most of us fall into is, is allowing ourselves to think we're not really as bad as we are, that our sin is not really as, as bad as it is, that we, we really, you know, we make some mistakes. People love, by the way, to justify their sin in this world. When they start to feel the guilt of sin, they love very sophisticatedly to justify that sin. You know, I love this quote. Uh, Ferguson again says, The tragedy of walking in the darkness is precisely that you never see the light. There's not enough light in the darkness for you to know that there's a world of light outside, and so you struggle with your sin or you seek therapy for your sins or do whatever modern people do. You try to hide your sins or silence your sins or compensate for your sins. And John is saying there's a world of grace in our Savior Jesus Christ because he is all-sufficient to give forgiveness of our sins and power to release us from their grip. And yet, we have to admit that we're sinners. And we have to admit that we're great sinners. And we have to admit that we're worse than we actually think we are. And we have to let God's word search us. You know, John will define for us in this letter what sin is. He'll say sin is lawlessness. And, and if at any time in your Christian life or experience you think you've attained some level of, I'm doing pretty good, all you need to do is go back to the moral law of God and you'll see how far short you're actually falling and how far short I'm actually falling. Um, John Calvin, when he is speaking about the good works of believers, and, and Calvin, I think Calvin was so great because he knew... Um, and the Puritans after him, they knew the corruptions of their own hearts. 
Um, by the way, you'll never be a great Christian until you know the corruptions of your own heart. Um, uh, Calvin, speaking about the good works of believers, says that they are so tainted with imperfections that even they need the blood of Jesus to cover them and make them acceptable. That even the best thing you may think you've done by the working of the Holy Spirit is still tainted with sin and pollution. And, and that in every one of us, you know, when John says, very interesting, when he says in verse 8 um, or verse 9, if we, if we confess our sins, and then again, notice um, in chapter 2, uh, verse 1, if anyone does sin, that's not a if maybe it happens, you know, just out of the blue, suddenly I sinned. But it's, it's when, when we sin, when we acknowledge our sin, when we confess our sin. You know, um, it, is, it is one of the greatest privileges and graces that we have that we can acknowledge our sinfulness and go to the Lord and confess it freely to him. And yet it's one of the things that most people hate more than anything in the world. It's one of the greatest privileges and yet men hate it more than anything in the world. They would rather hide their sin, cover their sin, justify their sin, dismiss their sin, spin it, go to counseling, do whatever else to get out of acknowledging it before the Lord. And yet John is encouraging the confession of sin. He is, he is trying to fuel it in the hearts of his people. He is saying essentially, listen, one of the great privileges you have as one who is walking in the light is that you can be honest with yourselves, that you can actually see yourselves for what you are, that you can actually see the blemishes, you can actually see the failures and the faults, and you don't cover them, and you don't try to hide them. You know, some, some people are very good, very good at hiding sin. Um, the worst place in the world to be is to be where we have stopped acknowledging and confessing our sins. Now, I think it's important for us as we look at this and we look at the call to confess our sins that we acknowledge that, that confession of sin is not, is not just saying, yeah, I've done something wrong. It's not just admitting. You know, that's a, let, let me say this as forcefully as I can this morning. One of the great errors that you could make is hear me saying, that, that all God wants us to do is to be people that walk around and say, yep, messed up again, did it wrong, shouldn't have done that. That's not the confession. The confession, and actually in verse 9, notice in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, that word is homo logizomai. It is the word to say the same thing as. That's what the word confess means. It is, it is saying, I will say the same thing about me and my sin as God in his word says about it. That's... That's what a Christian is doing. A Christian is someone who is saying, I will get in line with what God has already said about me, and I will allow his word to search me, and I will be honest by letting his truth and light expose me for what I am. That's, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. That is not a bad thing. When we convince ourselves that's a bad thing, and we end up then justifying, well, I'm not really that bad. I haven't done this. You know, I... I shudder every time I hear of some notorious fall from grace, if I could say that, in the life of a Christian, and I hear other ministers speak demeaningly about the one who fell, as if they would never do that. You know, your righteousness is not because you haven't done X, Y, or Z sin, and our righteousness is not because we have a good enough track record in avoiding such and such a sin. 
Because that's, that's what we tend to do. We tend to say, well, I'm not like those people over there. That's, we do that. I'm not like them. I'm not like... We do it subtly. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about the gospel is the gospel and the grace of God helps us to focus on ourselves. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 3, um, you know, don't focus on the speck in your brother's eye, but first focus on the log in your own. He's not, he's not saying that, that you're more sinful than others. He's saying your sin should seem bigger since it's right here than your brother's sin should seem looking at him from a distance. And so the grace of God allows us to focus on me and my sin and where I need new manifestations of grace and where I need the blood of Jesus and where I need to go to God confessing my sins. You know, I often feel when we do the uh, confession of sin here at New Covenant, I, I feel like we could spend the entire day on our faces just confessing sin to the Lord. I really feel that. I hope you feel that. If you don't feel that, that's a very, very dangerous place to be in because that means you think that you're not that bad. Um, we, we should have plenty to go to the Lord and to keep short accounts over. We have plenty to confess. We haven't loved him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbors ourselves. We have had sinful, greedy, lustful, angry, proud, every kind of our hearts. You know, the Puritans would talk about even the hearts of believers regenerate and renewed as being full of pollution still. Um, and John is encouraging. He's, he's encouraging. He's saying, listen, if, if we confess our sins, if we go to the Lord freely, if we know that the Lord is not standing there to crush his children, he's standing ready to pardon. That's what the Bible says. The Lord says, I stand ready to forgive. I stand ready to pardon. I stand ready to hear. Come. And the psalmist teaches us, doesn't he, to just pour out our hearts. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Have you ever thought about that? That a failure to confess sin leads to physical ailment. The Bible says that. I will affirm that this morning. I'm not going to say every time someone has a sickness, it's because they haven't confessed sin. But David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And then when he confesses his sins in Psalm 51 and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. He says, uh, uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then the bones that you have broken, he speaks of, being bound up, being healed, that, that David is always looking for restoration by God. Now, that's what John is encouraging. He's saying, wherever you are, if you are one who professes to walk in the truth and the light of Christ, the part of the grace of God is that you can go and confess your sins and that we can acknowledge what we are. Notice that he takes it to a step uh, deeper in verse 10. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If, if we uh, presume in our self-righteousness that we're not as bad as we, we think we are and we, we have sort of a, maybe a subtle, maybe even an unconscious, I, I'm not like that. We're essentially saying God, God's a liar because God's word is impossible. It's impossible to be in God's word and not to be uncovered constantly. It's, it's an absolute impossibility. 
The good news is that God doesn't uncover us and his word doesn't search us and he doesn't search us to leave us feeling condemned. Notice that the second thing is the provision and, and the, the kind providence and provision of God. Notice that he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because it's one of those verses you can, you can sit and you can sort of turn it and look at it from every different angle. And it never gets old when you get it. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to understand it, and, and it's amazing. If, if I acknowledge what I am in light with what God has said about me, if I hate the fact that I am what I am as a sinner and I want to walk in the light as he is in the light, I've already become a recipient of his grace. The blood of Jesus has already cleansed me. And yet there is a perpetual cleansing. And notice what John says. John says that if we do that and we go to him, we must go knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here are two things. On the one hand, John tells us something that we need to know about God when we talk about the provision for pardon and and cleansing. And that is that God covenantally is faithful and just to forgive the one that comes to him. Now, I want to say this this morning. If you do not confess your sins to the Lord in, in uh, the secret place of your home or wherever you may be before you and the Lord, there is no forgiveness, none. You are not forgiven. Every time I give the assurance of pardon on Sunday, if you are not someone who confesses your sin to the Lord, you are not forgiven. Please hear that this morning. You are not forgiven. There is no, there, there is, there is absolutely no gray area. There's no loopholes on judgment day. There's, there is, there is absolute black and white. The one that confesses their sins based on who God is, based on what God has done in Jesus Christ is forgiven of all sin. The one who does not confess is not forgiven. But notice as John talks about the nature of God, how do I know? Because there are those times. There are those times I feel as though I've outsinned the grace of God. There are those times where I am grappling with why did I do this again? Why did I say this again? Why can't I seem to get past this sin? And and maybe I have maybe I'm the man in Hebrews who's beyond the place of finding repentance. Maybe I'm that guy. Maybe I'm the guy in the cage in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress because there are those who, who are past the place of repentance, Hebrews says. So how do I know that I'm not? Well, I think John is trying to assure us. John is saying, here is a sure foundation if you are seeking for the assurance of salvation and that you are forgiven. He says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, Jonathan Edwards has this really great um, sermon called The Wisdom of God Displayed to the Angels. And in that sermon, he gives what is, to me, one of the most astonishing statements 
I've ever come across. Um, I want to read this to us. Edward says, The justice of God that required man's damnation and seemed inconsistent with his salvation now as much requires the salvation of those that believe in Christ as ever before it required their damnation. Salvation is an absolute debt to the believer from God. That should sound striking to you. If it doesn't, you're not listening. Salvation, Edward says, is an absolute debt to the believer from God. Now, that could be greatly misconstrued, but here's what Edward says, so that the believer may in justice demand it on account of what his surety, Christ, has done. So what Edwards is saying is, because of who Jesus is, because of what Christ has done, because he took the full wrath of God on the cross, because he kept the law of God in his life, because he shed his blood to cover the sins of his people, because he's a perfect sacrifice, because he propitiates the wrath of God, because he is the grounds of our salvation, the believer who is trusting in Jesus and going and confessing sins in light of who Christ is and what he has done, crying out for the shed blood of Jesus, that person can demand salvation from God because God has secured that salvation in the merits of Jesus. So that if you went and you said to the Lord, Father, have mercy on me, I've sinned against you, I've transgressed your law, have mercy on me because of your son, and you're trusting in the son, um, it would be unjust for God not to forgive you. Um, Ligon Duncan really had this amazing statement where he's meditating on that thought, and he says, it is absolutely character illogically impossible for God to visit his wrath upon us if we're in Christ. It is character illogically impossible for God to visit his wrath on us if we're in Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The great problem with my sin is that it calls down judgment and wrath. Every sin, the least sin, the little tiny selfish thought I have deserves judgment. And yet... Christ has taken the judgment. Christ has shed his blood for every sin, every little sin, every great sin. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, that there, there are no sins that will not be forgiven men, and obviously he means who are trusting him, except sin against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you know who Jesus is and you, you, you saw his works and you turned away from him and you said, no, he hasn't done this by the Spirit of God. No, he's not God the Son. No, he's not the only Savior. You will not be forgiven. Jesus says that. But here, Jesus, by his spirit through John, says that whatever the sin may be, and he says it at the end of this letter, he says there is a sin that doesn't lead to death, and we're to pray for that, and it'll be forgiven. And if we confess our sins, it is an absolute... Listen, what you need more than anything, much more than watching the Super Bowl, is to know that your sins are forgiven. And to know that you have a God in heaven who is vouchsafed, who says in Hebrews that he swears by himself, that by an oath, by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. 
A believer is somebody that flies for refuge into the arms of the God who is faithful and just to forgive sins. That's what a Christian is. That's what we are if we're in Christ. We are those who stand ready to say, you know what? I am so much worse than I want to think. Um, By the way, Charles Spurgeon had a one of those 100,000 memorable statements that Spurgeon makes and uh, says, you know, when somebody thinks little of you, you can, you can rest because you're so much worse than they think you are. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> when you get upset because somebody thinks... Uh, and, then, and, and the funny thing is it works both ways, so y'all can just have a stalemate of, like, I'm worse than I'm worse. <laughs> um, and that's how the Apostle Paul could say he's the chief of sinners. But it's also how the Apostle Paul could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he, the, the great Apostle Paul, who said, I know nothing against myself, also said he was a man who did things he didn't want to do, and he didn't do things he wanted to do, and he had a war going on within him. Um, and so I want us to see this morning there's, there is a, an extent to which First um, John 1, especially verse 8 through 2, 2, goes in the Christian life. There is, there's an extent to which it goes that it never, it never stops encouraging us to come to that place where we're confessing our sins to the Lord. Now, if, um, if you ever come to a place where you're not confessing your sins to the Lord, that's a very, very dangerous place to be because that's either the first step in backsliding or apostasy. So if you're a professor, if you profess faith in Jesus, um, and you're a true believer and you stop confessing your sins, then that's the first step in backsliding. If, if, you, if you're not a true believer and you're a hypocrite, it's the first step toward apostasy. And they look the same. They look the same. So the second we stop confessing our sins to the Lord, the second we stop meditating on his character, that he is faithful and just to forgive me when I come to him, that, that he, is, he is going to forgive me when I come because he's extending that mercy in Jesus. If I come, if I confess, if I cry out to him, he will most certainly hear me. The second I stop doing that is the second I decline. And it's a very dangerous thing. Um, as John is setting out the provision, you know, it's interesting. He, he does the second thing here in the provision in verse 9, he tells us what actually is accomplished when we confess our sins. So we, we acknowledge our sin, we acknowledge who God is, and then John says, if we do that, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, I know you know that hymn so well by Toplady, Rock of Ages, and I love that line um, where he says, let the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Toplady is meditating on the words of 1 John 1 9. He not only says, I forgive the guilt of your sin, God not only says, You are no longer guilty, but He promises a continual cleansing of His people. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, this is a challenging verse for me. Because there have been many times where I have sinned and I have gone to the Lord and I have confessed my sin to the Lord. And then within a week, I found myself committing the same sin and thinking, has God not cleansed me? 
Because there's a, a wrong way of reading 1 John 1 9, and that wrong way would be a perfectionistic way of reading it. As if John is saying, if we happen to sin and we confess that sin, God will forgive us, but then he cleanses us, and then you're not going to do that sin ever again. I've actually heard Reformed ministers tackle this verse like that. John Calvin on this verse, he, he essentially says, and I'll, I'll spare you the quote, but he essentially says, look, that would be the wrong way of reading this. What, what John is saying is that God immediately forgives us. He's already forgiven us, right? I mean, because that's the other question. If God has forgiven all my sins in the bloodshed of Jesus, if when Jesus died, all of my sins were legally and forever forgiven, because that's what the Bible teaches, why do I even need to confess those sins? Because I have an ongoing relationship with my Father in heaven, and I need his paternal forgiveness. And secondly, the cleansing that John is speaking of is a progressive cleansing where God is promising that he is more and more and more and more going to cleanse his people until one day we are free from sin in glory. That's John is saying he is looking at it as a process. He's not saying it's a once for all. If you happen to one time sin, sadly, a lot of people in the church think about sin that way. One time, you know, I just really messed up this one time. But he's saying, by this process, God continues to forgive. He continues to cleanse. And he brings it to a place of perfection in the ultimate glorification of his people. We'll notice just briefly that the provision and the grounds of all of this um, are more fully brought out in chapter 2. Notice John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal, not to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John is doing here is he's, he is driving home more forcefully the reality that how do I know How can I be assured that I'm forgiven and that I'm going to go to glory forever and I'm not going to go to hell forever? Because you're going to end up, you're going to one or the other. That's it. I don't care how much our culture doesn't like talking about hell. You will go to heaven or you will go to hell forever. That's it. The only thing keeping us from heaven is our sin. The only thing keeping us from hell is our breath. That's it. And yet, John is here saying, if you want to be assured, if you want to know where the forgiveness is rooted and grounded, it's in the fact that Jesus not only died and shed his blood, but that he ever lives to make intercession for his people, that he ever lives to stand at the right hand of the Father, that he is ruling and reigning, that he is presenting himself as the perfectly righteous representative of his people. That's why John says that. John doesn't say, if you just put enough sin away, you are the righteous one. He says, if we sin, we have an advocate. We have a a counselor. We have a, a lawyer with the Father. We have one pleading our cause. We have one pleading the merits of his death. We have one pleading the merits of his life. How wonderful. How wonderful. I love... I love the way the hymn writer captures it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. For me, the sinless Savior died. 
My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what John's saying. John is saying, if we sin, we have to know that there is a place of rest and, and solace. I, you know, let me say this to you this morning, because if you're like me, and I've said this a lot to you in the past, it's much easier to think of God as holy and just. Maybe it's not for you. Most people in culture don't struggle with this. It's much easier for me to think about God as the holy, infinite, just God who must punish sin. That's very easy for me. Because his word is so clear, my conscience um, convicts me of sin. We know, we know, we all know. Um, And it's much harder to believe that God is merciful and gracious. It's easier to say you believe God is merciful and gracious. It's easier to say, oh, I believe God is merciful. But our lives then don't reflect it because we don't confess sin. We don't live in light of it. We don't abide in the doctrine of Christ. We don't love worshiping him. So it's easier to say, I believe God is gracious. It's easier to believe that it's strict judgment. And what John would have us understand is those two things meet in the person of Jesus. And the judgment falls on Christ and the wrath is propitiated and the mercy is forever extended. And I want to put this as potently as I can to you this morning. If we don't act on that by believing that and rejoicing in that and loving that and kept confessing our sin in light of that, it, it is dishonoring to God. So the same way John says if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. If, if we don't believe that he is holding out the all-merciful Christ for the forgiveness of whatever I've done, If I don't believe that, then I'm making God a liar. And I'm ultimately saying there's no sin in me. And I may try to deal with a guilty conscience, but I'm actually not resting in the Savior who has dealt with everything and who promises to forgive and to cleanse. Um, I want to encourage you this morning with just a couple things as we walk out of this. When we think about the confession of sin, and we think about our relationship with the Lord, I want us to imagine for a moment what this looks like in practice in my life. So I want you to imagine for a moment, what, what would it look like for me to take these truths and to put them, everybody wants, give me like practical, okay, here's practical. What does this look like in your life today? What does it look like? What sins do we need to confess to the Lord? What mercy do we need to be hoping in? Um, where do we need to be directing our sight? Are we, are we looking at Christ or are we just looking at our, our circumstances and just trying to maneuver ourselves, covering our sin, uh, psychologizing away our sin, or whatever else men do to cover in sophisticated ways? Or, or am I one who is saying, Lord, have mercy on me? Now, by the way, David... I don't know if you've ever thought of this. After David committed the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, premeditating his murder and and taking his wife, um, he remained unrepentant for a year. And I imagine he went to the synagogue and he worshipped and he went on through his day in and day out activities as a king over God's people but he never confessed that sin to the Lord. 
That's, that's how sinister our hearts are, that he could do something as heinous as he did. He could go through all the motions religiously, and he didn't stop and confess his sin until God sent Nathan the prophet to say, you're the man. And he penned that beautiful psalm of, of, of repentance in which he hoped in the mercy of God. Now, I want to say this as we close. Uh, what this looks like in your life and in my life is that we will become people that confess sins. That's, that's the most foundational. Christians are people who confess sins, not just to one another, not to a priest, to the priest, to Jesus. We go straight to God and we can confess those sins freely because he stands ready to forgive. We are to confess our sins particularly. We're not just to confess, uh, we're not just to confess uh, that we're sinners. It's not enough to say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. But we're to confess the ways that we sin against the Lord. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, Men ought not to content themselves with general repentance, but it's every man's duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins particularly. And then we are to confess our sins continually. Um, I actually think that's one of the greatest dangers to think, well, I've, I, I have confessed my sins in the past. I, I, I have gone to the Lord in the past. And to content ourselves in that. Um, when Martin Luther said the whole of the Christian life is repentance, confession of sin is the evidence that we are a repenting people that we confess our sins is the evidence that we are repenting people. I want to I close with this thought, though. We never want to come to a place where we view the confession of sin legally without seeing the blood of Jesus. Because um, what draws out the deepest and realest confession of sin is that Christ has taken that sin on himself, and he's already paid the debt. And he's already fallen under the wrath. And he's already washed him away with his blood. And he stands ready to forgive and cleanse by that blood. That's, that's what John would have you see. He would have you see the blood of Jesus. He would have you see the crucified Son of God. And he would have you see the risen and reigning Son of God, the righteous one, our advocate. That's, that's what fuels our repentance. More than any sense of just guilt or shame or uh, feeling ensnared. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves and welcomes the repentance and the confession of your people. And as we have already confessed our sin this morning, we pray that you would grant us the grace of continual confession and turning from our sin. We pray that you would make us to see that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you have given us an advocate with yourself, even your son, Jesus Christ, the righteous Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have paid the legal debt, that you have established everlasting mercy and grace for us. Oh God, we pray that you would give us grace to lay hold by faith on your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.